You are listening to an audio from Redemption City Church. If you would like to explore more resources or donate to this ministry, go to www.visitredemptioncc.com. Hi, my name is Brandon, and you are about to listen to a sermon exhortation from Redemption City Church, and we're so glad you're with us today. Now, here's our one major ask. It is our hope and it is our prayer that as you lean into this sermon, that you would test all things by the precious word of God, holding fast to every single thing that is profitable in this sermon for your life. And that's rooted in scripture out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Now, we are living in the pandemic of COVID-19, and we understand that life as we know it in our churches is not what it used to be. And so whether you are a covenant member, regular attender, or you are leaning in with us virtually from another location, it is our hope that while you are with us on this journey, of going deeper into your relationship with Jesus, that you would take life seriously. So make sure that you have uninterrupted time for this sermon. You with me? Uninterrupted time where you can give God the honor and the attention that he deserves. I pray that this sermon, with all of my heart, would be redemptive, transformative, convicting, and ultimately encouraging for your spiritual growth. Grace and peace. Well, good morning, Redemption City Church. It's Pastor Brandon, and I am super excited and thankful to bring the Word of God this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I really, really hope that you're using your Bibles, let's open them up to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be getting in there into that text in just a little bit. As we continue forward in our Ephesians series titled Our Story into God's Story, I want to continue to remind you that this series is really all about discovering who we are, which is talked about in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, right? And then we kind of walk across the bridge of chapter 4, crossing into now what are we called to do as Christians, chapter 4 and chapter 5, and then ultimately we learn how to stand, how to stand as believers in a difficult world in chapter 6. And so I just want to remind you that no matter who you are, no matter if this is your first time tuning in with us on part 21 of our series, and and you're like, whoa, whoa, what's this whole Ephesians series about? Whether you've been studying this book we call the Bible for a long time, or this is the first time you've ever opened up this book, I believe that if you open your heart and your mind as, as wide as you can, and you really ask the Lord, say, God, I want to hear from you today. We believe here at Redemption City Church that you can have a living encounter with God through Ephesians like you've never had before. Now, last week in part 20 of our Ephesians series titled The Postcard of the Christian Life, we, we talked about what that means, right? Like this was a 3,000-foot perspective of a postcard. And so if you know postcards, we have postcards of city images like New York or Detroit or Florida or San Francisco. And even though it doesn't really tell you the whole story of what's in San Francisco or New York City, it gives you a bird's eye aerial view, a snapshot, right, of what that city would be like. And so last week, we kind of looked at the postcard from a 3,000 foot aerial perspective of what what is this whole Ephesians chapter 5 thing all about? What is Paul even trying to communicate to us? And some of the things that we learned was that every single one of us have been given a specific amount of dollars and a specific amount of days here on earth. They were given by God. And once we 
reach the end of those dollars. And once we reach the end of those days, that's it. It's over. We die. There's no science. There's no biology. There's nothing we can do to extend our days and our dollars beyond what God has already prescribed for us. Therefore, we learn that the goal for you and for me as Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians is to be great steward over those budgets, uh, budgeted dollars and those budgeted days so that we can live well into the glory of God. And we learned that, if man, if you, if you've really experienced the forgiveness of God, if you've really been redeemed and you've been reconciled, if you've seen the hand of God move in your life in such a way where you're like, man, Pastor Brandon, that relationship, man, you don't know where it was, but because of God, we've been restored. Pastor Brandon, you don't know what was going on in my health. Whatever it is, if you've experienced the healing, transformative work of God, then the only rightful response, remember that, for you and for me is to say, God, have your way with my life. I'm here, Lord. I'm here ready, standing in the need of prayer, standing in the need of your instructions, and I want to do your will. We learn that the Bible is permeating with instruction so that we might be all that God has called us to be and that he's given us incredible protection. And that protection is laced and embodied in things that he's saying, hey, hey, I want you to do some things that are going to be helpful for you. And I want you to stop doing some things that are not helpful for you. And that's because I love you so much. And I'm not going to let your sin take you out. And I'm not going to let Satan take you out. And finally, we learned that chapter 5 of Ephesians is really going to be the descending and exhilarating portion of the whole book of Ephesians where we learn all of what we shouldn't do and shouldn't do. And God's going to give us all these different commands. And it's like the twists and the turns of a roller coaster. And the only way to do that is to make sure that you are securely, right, securely in that roller coaster, chapters 1 through 3, radically confident that God loves you and that his plans for you are good. And that brings us to today, part 21 of this series titled The Postcard of the Shoulds and the Should Nots of Life. Now that's going to be critical for us today, right? Because first we were at a 3,000 foot perspective and we were kind of looking at what, man, what is, what is Ephesians 5 about generally? Now we're going to kind of come down to a thousand foot. We're not quite landing, but we're preparing to land. We can start to see some of the proverbial streets of the city of Ephesians 5. And then next week and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to go boots on the ground, street by street, looking at all that God has for us. And so I want to remind you that we're going to continue to embark on some life-changing content content in scripture. We're going to look at this. You may have thought you've read Ephesians before. We're going to look at it. It's life-changing. And we're embarking on some life-changing context in scripture. So what is it? What is God really saying in this verse? What does this text really mean for my life? So let's get ready to do that. Let's get ready to march. And we're going to start that process off by reading the word of God uninterrupted from verse 1 through 21. Here's the word of the Lord. Verse 1, therefore, man, what is this therefore about? This therefore is therefore everything that that has been communicated in the end of chapter 4, right? Man, because you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, you've been redeemed, you've been forgiven, you've been told to put away these things, to not be callous. Therefore, because of all those prescriptions, be imitators of God. Oh, that's so legit. We get to be imitators. We get to be like Christ, right? The Omago Dei, image of God as beloved children. So how do we be images? How do we become imitators of God as beloved children. Verse 2, and walk in love. Man, love, love is patient, love is kind. It does not insist on its own way. It does not envy, right? Walk in that kind of love. 
how? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, right? Didn't Christ so fully embody, not insisting on his own way, not my will, but your will be done? A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So when we love in that kind of a way, as Christ loved us, it's like a sweet offering, a fragrance, and a sacrifice to God. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Man, that, 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 that's, that's so important. Hey, be imitators, but don't do this. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. What does that mean? But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Wow, let there be thanksgiving instead of those things. This is, this is so deep. This is so good. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure... Oh, I love how it's not just sexually immoral, sexually immoral or impure, or who is covet, or who covets, meaning to be an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What a sobering statement. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, Therefore, because of everything we've just said, now said from verse 1 through 6, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness. This is a reminder. Pause and remind. Don't forget who you were. You were darkness. But now you have a new identity. You are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. Verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all the good and things that are right and true. I want you to remember that. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing, pleasing, pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. I love when he says, don't do this, but do that. We're going to get into that over these next couple weeks. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. What does that mean, RCC? Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish. Ooh, we don't want to be foolish people, right? Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine. Man, is he just talking about wine? We're going to look at that. And do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always, giving thanks always, always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the perfect, healing, transformative, God-glorifying, change your life if you take it serious, word of God. Now let's pray with that hopeful expectation this morning. Abba Father, our God, I pray right now that you would open our minds to just believe. That we would believe that whatever hard thing you're calling us to do right now, that we would just believe you, act upon that, and obey. 
This doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect and automatically know how to get away and out from the things that we've wandered into either accidentally or willfully. But Lord, it does mean, and we are declaring that we will believe and trust you to the active point of effort and righteous change. Abba Father, I pray for those who are challenged, particularly by substance abuse and sexual compromise and addiction and anxiety-laced fears right now, that in their heart of hearts, they would be delivered out of the lies that Satan has spoken over them. That they would see that the truth right now is that you, Lord, you, Lord, are here. You are ready to reconcile all things. So let that lead to me and everyone listening today, whether it's by video, by audio, Lord, they say, yes, Lord. And Lord, would you show them and tell them that what you have to offer them isn't a lesser life or a lower way or something less joyful, but that is actually going to be kind of sweet, God. It's going to be amazing walking with you. And Lord, I pray that you would prove that to them, that you would take the lives at this church and those who are listening, including this broken down guy who is preaching this sermon right now, who's struggling to work out his own sin, and you would do, Lord, what only you can do towards every heart that is willing to say yes and to scream yes to you, Lord. So right now, Lord, may it happen in our minds first, the transformation, and then may that transformation become permanent in our hearts. It's because of your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Now, I'm going to be teaching you some things that I want you to download so deep in your mind and so deep in your heart. You know why? Because I'm going to be challenging you today and I'm going to be daring you today to then teach it to others. But first, I'm going to be teaching you an axiom that's going to be so important because this axiom is going to describe everything about what I'm going to be teaching you today. Now, let me t- let's keep track with me. This axiom is going to be so important because this axiom is going to carry us all the way through chapter 5. You tracking with me? So hopefully this axiom is going to be simple yet profound like my preaching. I want my preaching to be simple today, but I want you to hear profound things today. Are you with me? Okay, so here's the axiom. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. I'm going to say that again. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. You see, sin isn't bad because God says, hey, hey, don't do this. And now that I've just randomly spoken this, it's, it's, it's forbidden. No, no, no. But rather, sin is, sin is bad because God looks at it for what it is. And he says, hey, 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 this thing right here, it's going to separate you from me. Are you hearing me? It's going to separate you from me. I don't want you to do that. And it's going to wreck your life. And so in my infinite love and in my infinite wisdom, I have officially diagnosed it inherently as something that separates you from me, that wrecks your life. Therefore, I'm going to give it a name and I'm going to call it sin. And I'm going to say refrain from that. And it's forbidden. Now I want you to repeat after me. Say, say, sin isn't bad. Come on, say it. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's, because it's bad. Pay attention. God looks at all of us, and then he looks down at the earth, and then he looks right intently at Satan. And then Satan, he looks right back at the world, and he snares and he growls at you. And then he looks at God, and you know what Satan says? He says, hey, God, do you know what I want to do to your children? I want to have my way with your people. 
I want to have my way with your people. Hey, lean in, family and friends. Hear, hear, hear this. Rather, it's the people of Israel back in the biblical times, whether it's the Jewish nation of today, or it's our own modern Christian world that we live in. Satan is looking and he is challenging God. He's saying, hey, my ultimate goal and my ultimate aim in life is to wreck your children, to obliterate them and to destroy them. And my primary vehicle of doing this is going to be through the vehicle of sin. Sin is going to be my blueprint and I'm going to destroy them. I'm taking him out. And so, and so God, in, in response to saying, he, he looks at me and he, and, he, and he looks at you and he says, hey, you, you have an adversary and you have an enemy who wants to take you out. And so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to refrain from some things and I'm going to command you to not do some things. I'm going to forbid some things because they're inherently going to wreck your relationship with me. They're going to wreck your life. And they've been, and they're crafted by this enemy and this adversary. And I don't want that for you. Hey, it's like God saying, listen to me. I love you so much that I sent my own son, my one and only begotten son. And he's paid a great price. He paid the blood bought price on Calvary. And he went down into the grave and then he rose in three days and he gave you and he lavished all these gifts upon you. You have a new identity, a new hope. Therefore, walk in new activities. Walk away from Satan's blueprint. That's that's the aim that God has for us. So when God says these things are forbidden, it's not because God is trying to control me or trying to control you, but it's because he understands radically more than we'll ever understand that the wage of engaging in these things yields death. They take us out. God doesn't want that for me and you. Brothers and sisters, I want you to lean into this. The Bible says that when sin enters in and you engage in sin, bang, death immediately takes root in you and it grows and it germinates in you. And who would want to sign up for something like that? Sin germinating and taking root and making itself habitable in us and taking over our lives, ultimately leading us to death. Like, can't you see? God wants you to radically know that sin isn't bad because he forbid it. He forbid it. Because it is inherently, totally, categorically bad for me and you. Therefore, therefore, sin isn't warned in the Bible. It's not warned in the Bible because God is trying to keep you from having the time of your life. And God's trying to keep me from having the time of my life. But rather, sin is warned in the Bible because God so radically wants you to have the true time of your life with him now and forever as joyful unencumbered by sin Christ followers of the kingdom like like praise Christ for this axiom right praise Christ that sin isn't bad because it's forbidden but that it is so radically wrapped in being forbidden because it's bad and our heavenly father loves us. So for those of you who are, you're sitting and you're thinking and you're scheming and you're frustrated and you're like, you know what? God doesn't understand me, Pastor Brandon. I, he doesn't understand who I am and how I've been shaped and what I need and what my desires are. I just feel like I can't have fun ever since I've been a Christian. Ever since I've been a Christian, it's not fun anymore. He doesn't want me to have joy. He doesn't want me to be happy. You know what, Pastor Brandon? If I'm being really honest with you, sometimes I think Life would be better if I wasn't a Christian. Then I could be happy because 
man, it's just, I don't know if God wants me to be happy. He has so many rules. Hey, look at me. Look, look, look at me right now. Don't talk like that. Don't you dare talk about God like that. Don't you say that God doesn't want you to have joy. Don't you dare say about God that he doesn't have your best interests in mind. When you say that, you belittle the cross when you talk like that. Our God's not sitting around saying, oh, please don't do this and please don't do that because you're a Christian and I want your life to be difficult and I want you not to be happy and I don't want you to have a joy, so I'm going to give you a bunch of rules. That's not our God. That's, there's not even a theological category in Scripture for God talking like that. Instead, our God on high, is, he's teaching and he's instructing and he's influencing and he's wooing and he's commanding us to do certain things and to refrain from certain things, especially, even if we experience them as fun. You want to know why? Because sometimes and most of the time they aren't what they appear to be, folks. They're not what they appear to be. <laughs> you guys know that, that, that verse in the New Testament, right? The one that says sin is pleasurable, but only for a season. Hey, listen to me. Oh, sin is very pleasurable. It's, it's very fun. It's very enticing. It's very, it, it, it's very wooing. It could be the time of your lives. And you've got to teach that to your kids. Are you hearing me? Hey, if you've got kids right now, hey, lean in. If you don't have kids, you need to lean into this. You have got to teach your kids this principle as soon as possible, faith family. They have got to know the truth. They have got to know how awesome and fun and exciting and pleasurable sin can really be. Because if you don't do that, they're going to be really confused. They're going to become teenagers. You guys know where I'm going with me. Keep tracking. They're going to become a teenager one day. And then they're going to be a young adult. And... And you kept them in this little, nice, little, warm and fuzzy Disney Channel Christian cocoon saying, don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and don't do that. God doesn't like it. God will be mad at you. These things are bad. These things are bad. And then they're going to go to high school. And then they're going to go to college. They're going to get a roommate who's not walking with God. And they're going to be enticed and wooed into these things that were forbidden their whole life. And they were never told that these things are actually fun and actually pleasurable. And then all of a sudden, they're going to feel duped and deceived. Hey, like this happens all the time to Christian kids, folks. I've been a youth pastor. I went to a Christian university. It happens all the time. They go to college and they leave the protection of their little perfect little Christian cocoon and they, are, they feel duped and deceived and they wreck their lives because they feel like, hey, I, I was raised and they said that this stuff was bad. It doesn't feel bad. It feels good to my flesh. It feels good to my heart. Your, but this is the thing. Your kids need to clearly understand that the Bible is not silent about that sin is actually fun and enticing and pleasurable. you got to teach your kids that right now. Eight years old, nine years old, they're ready to hear this. Otherwise, your good little Christian kids are going to have their morals and their soul corrupted because they didn't know the truth. So tell them. Tell them in advance. Hey, hey, the Bible says that these things, they are fun. Going out, hanging out with your friends at these parties and doing these actions, oh, they're fun. They're actually a lot of fun. They're super pleasurable doing these things with your girlfriend and your boyfriend. It actually, it's like the time of your life. It'll be the time of your life. But then you have to tell them the rest of the story. You tracking? You've got to tell them the rest of the story. They need to know that this cheap form, this plastic happiness is only for receiving. They need to know 
what Hebrews 11 says, that sin is pleasurable only for a moment, but in the end, oh, I love that comma in that verse in Hebrews 11. Hey, 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 Aiden and Aubrey, hey, hey, sit, listen to dad. Sin is pleasurable. Oh, it is radically fun. I'm not going to lie to you, but it's only going to be for a moment, and it's cheap, and it's plastic, and the Bible says that after the fun ends, it yields to your death. Finish the story. Lean in. Because Jesus came to give life, and to give life abundantly. But your children need to know that Satan came to take life, and to take life violently. Are you with me? Like, Satan does not have your best interest nor your kids in mind. You have got to get in the game. Sin is his choice weapon of this war, and it is prescribed, and it is made to take you out, to take your children out, and to take out those who you love. But our God, he's come to give us life and life abundantly. He's all about our best interests, and his choice weapon against the enemy is purity and righteousness so that you can grow and be set so free to be simply yet supernaturally who you've always been called and destined to be. Like he doesn't want you to ever feel like a second-class citizen anymore. Like you don't have to be like the Gauls who were treated like a second-class citizen like the Romans. In Christ, we have a first-class citizenship in the kingdom of heaven and we have to know we got to believe that. we got to teach that. we got to preach that in our hearts and to those we love, especially our children. Hey, hey, listen, child. Hey, sin, sin is fun. It's enticing. It's actually a lot of fun, but it's momentary. It won't last. It's plastic. It's cheap, and then it ends, and then the reward you get after your fun is death and pain and tears. But God, our God, wants to free us so up to be at peace. That's what we're all looking for. You know, the world calls it many things. People are searching for their pursuit of happiness. Um, even in Christian circles, we say we're looking to be satisfied in God. You know what we're looking for? To be at peace with God. Remember that in Ephesians 9 and 8? To be at peace with God. To be at peace with ourselves. And to be at peace with others. That's the ultimate aim of, of what we all desire. And God says the way to find that kind of peace is through radically devoting your life to me and reframing from things that are forbidden. And they're only forbidden because the enemy and the adversary use them to take you out. They destroy you. That's so important. Like Jesus' whole heart and his whole mission is to set us up and to free us up to do radical things for the kingdom. And they give us radical opportunities to step into joy. And you just need your mind and your heart to believe that this morning. Therefore, here's our first takeaway. God's desire for you to refrain from certain things is primarily rooted in his loving aim at stopping Satan's attempt to destroy your life. He doesn't aim to keep you from having a great time, but to prepare you for the greatest time of your lives with him now and forever. This truth should not only change your lives and activities, but it should it, but it should pay um, but you should pay special attention in teaching your children this so they aren't surprised by the pleasures of sin as they grow older. Better preparing their Christian-centered, uh, sorry, Christ-centered activity to persevere through the trappings of Satan. 
Now I tell you what, the whole heart and the whole mission of Jesus is to set us up and our purity is a huge part of that. The whole heart and mission of Jesus is to set us up to be set so radically free and our purity is a huge huge part of that. Like we talked about that back in part 18, didn't we? We talked about how important purity is. And so we're going to take a little look back at what purity is as I wrote that faithful, hopefully really biblical explanation of purity. So let's look at that. Purity explained. Biblical purity is the freedom from anything that separates you. Remember this? In the smallest iota from your relationship with God. And we, we unpack that right with my, the, remember I gave you the example with my friend and the whole pazuki and the dog poop, that whole example, right? It is the quality of being utterly faultless, uncompromised, and disenchanted by sin. Because sin no longer determines the choices or motivations of one's heart. Purity is the literal vehicle, means, and evidence that communicates your walk in holiness is genuine. And though the term purity is often used today in relation to sexuality, purity is not limited to our sexuality. God desires that we live purely in all of our dealings with him, ourselves, and others. Therefore, purity should define our thought life, words, and activity in such a way that maintains fellowship with a perfect and righteous God. Always remember this, without purity, you won't see God. Remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's so important. Man, because if you have a pure heart, then it allows you to be able to see God. And when you can see God, you get to establish a relationship with God. And as your relationship with God matures, you are set up to be free and to be at peace with God. Therefore, keep track with me, if you want to be at peace with God, if you want to be at peace with yourself, and you want to be at peace with others, you want to be set so free you got to have a relationship with God, folks. And the only way that you can establish a relationship with God is to be able to see him in the first place. And the Bible is prescribing, describing loudly that the only way you're going to see God is to have purity. you got to have purity. Now, remember this. Back in Ephesians chapter 4, remember a couple verses just before what we're learning right now in Ephesians chapter 5? It's specifically chapter 4, verse 30. Let's put that up on the screen right now. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed in the day of redemption. Wow. Remember, when we sin, the, when we sin against the Holy Spirit, it grieves him. It grieves our God. It grieves him. Why does it grieve him? Remember, it grieves him because it hurts him to see the things that we're doing. It's not because he's just sitting around, wrath of God, wrath of God. He wants the best for you. So when we sin and we do things that are forbidden, it grieves our Heavenly Father. Number one, because it's an offense to him. Why is it an offense to him? Because he's like, hey, hey, didn't I just tell you? Satan wants to take your life. And he wants to take your life violently. I want to give you life. And I want to give you life abundantly. And I want you to have purity and righteousness, which leads to life. He wants to use sin so he can take you out. Why are you choosing to be on his team? It offends God. And the second reason that it grieves God is because he's a good dad and he knows how much it's going to cost us in the end. It's going to cost us everything. 
So, like a good dad, it grieves his heart when he sees me and he sees you choosing to wander off in the wrong way. But here's the thing. It grieves God, not, not primarily because he's disappointed in us, but he's disappointed for us. And that in and that for means everything. He's not primarily disappointed in us, but for us because he wants the very best for me and for you. He knows the great cost that's at stake, your eternity. And it breaks his heart. But you know what it also says? Oh, I love that the Bible was filled with good news for everything that's bad. It, it, it says in that same verse, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Like, isn't that, isn't that exciting news? Isn't that exhilarating? We've been sealed We've been sealed for the day of redemption. We talked about that way back in part one and part two, that seal, right? The, the Roman, they would put the seal, the whole book is coming back together. So in the Roman times, they would put a seal on the belt, and that seal would mean that you are sealed. You have a new name, and nobody can ever take it away from you. Oh, the gods, oh, they wanted that so bad. I want that seal. I want to belong. I want to belong. I want to belong. We talked about that same seal, right? When Jesus was put in the tomb and he died, the king put a seal and said, nobody can remove this stone from this tomb. And that meant nobody can move it. It's sealed. It's unbreakable. That same seal is what Paul's talking about. We've been sealed, an unbreakable seal for the day of redemption. So what Paul's communicating, what God is communicating through Paul is saying, hey, Brandon, hey, whatever your name is, don't tamper with this seal. Don't break it. Don't break it. Leave it alone. Satan is coming for you. You have an adversary, and his goal and his aim is to convince you that this seal can be broken. Like, have you ever went to the grocery store? I know you have. And you go and you get that jar and it has like the label on it or the milk carton has a label and it says, if this seal is broken, do not use. And so you pick up that can and you're like, oh, great. There's a great seal. Let me take this one. And you pick up that can and you see that the seal has been broken and there's a little liquid that's falling down, right? Do you put that in your cart and, and check out with it? No, nobody does that, right? What do you do? You put that broken sealed can right back on that shelf. Why? Because the seal has been broken and you have, de you have deemed that it is unusable and unfit for your purchase. So you put it back and you go get another one that's sealed. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit has sealed you radically so you could be usable for the kingdom. But Satan's goal is to tamper with your mind and to tamper with your heart and to tamper with your soul and to convince you that your seal has been broken. You, you track with me? He has certain insidious desires and plans and isms and schisms and all these different things. And it's all wrapped up in convincing you that you are unusable and you are rotten, and you are spoiled for the kingdom, and you have no place anymore. And there are so many men and women that Satan is tampering with right now. And that might be you right now. You feel, you're like, Pastor Brandon, you don't know my story. If you really knew what I did, if you really knew who I was, you would know that my soul has been broken. I can't be used for the kingdom anymore. If you knew my carnality and my rebellion, if you knew my past, you would know my seal is broken. Hey, eyes right here. Do not believe that lie anymore. God wants to use you radically for his mission and his purposes for your joy and his glory. 
I'm going to say it again. God wants to use you, young man. I know what you did. He wants to use you right now, young woman. Hey, hey, father, I, I know what you did. Hey, 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 mom, I know what happened. Hey, hey, brother, hey, sister. Hey, I know what you did. Hey, hold on, hold on. God wants to use you. Hallelujah. He wants to use you for his mission, for his purpose. And he's going to give you great joy. And it's going to be for his glory. He wants you to step into this idea, this sealed idea that you are sealed forever, forever, and that nothing can break it. He wants you to leave and to flee from the lies of the enemy that says you are used up. You're just a peon. You've went too far. You've sinned too much. You're beyond the cross. That's what Satan wants you to know. Stop believing those lies. He's a liar. Satan's a liar. He's a deceiver. You are not beyond the cross. You are so valuable. You are so special. And God wants to set you up free so you can do amazing things to the kingdom. you got to wake up. Wake up. Because God wants to use you. Why can't you see? Satan wants to hold you down. That's what he's doing. He wants to hold you down. He wants to stomp you out. He wants to keep reminding you of your failure after failure after failure after failure, your sin after sin after sin after sin, and your mistake after mistake. And that night and that night and that day, he wants to keep replaying it over and over and over. But God wants to redeem the story. Oh, he doesn't want you to forget your sin. Don't forget your failure. He wants to redeem it. So you use it and you wring your life out. You say, praise God that you've saved me. Now I want to be set so free to do your will. Listen to me. You got to rise up right now out of that chair, out in your soul, and you got to say, no, no, no more lies, Satan. I'm sealed forever. An unbreakable seal. I'm a son. I'm a daughter of Christ. Speak and preach the truth over your life and say, sin and death can no longer hold me down. And you want to know why this is so important? Because the world absolutely needs you. Did you know that? The world needs Brandon. Hey, what's your name? Say your name. The world needs you. Pastor Brandon, don't say that. That's so arrogant. The world doesn't need me. Oh, oh, the world does need you. In fact, let me share three most definite realities about our God, the world we live in, and your, your part in it. Here it is. Number one, you are most definitely not God. You are most definitely not God. Oh, let's start with that. Oh yeah, you're not God. You're not God on high. Who's the one that put the stars in the sky? Who's the one that created the expanse of the ocean? Who's the one that spoke creation into earth, right? We saw how God laid that out to Job. I'm God. And most definitely we're not God. We don't heal people. God heals people. We don't save people. God saves people. God does the work. So number one, we are most definitely not God. Number two, God has most definitely called you to be his hands and feet to this world. Hey, eyes up here. God sent his son to die for you. And he was crucified in the most gruesome way. They pierced his side. They crowned him. They whipped him. They spit on him. They condemned him. And he gave up his life. And then he went into the grave for three days. And he descended down into hell. And he came back out because sin could not hold him down. So he came down there as the conquering king that he is. And he lifted up and was raised into life. And he came out lavishing gifts, 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 gifts to everybody. And with all these gifts, you have been given 
this supernatural responsibility as an ambassador of the kingdom of God and the world needs you. Or more faithfully, the world needs the God in you. In fact, Jesus in the book of Acts says, hey, I'm now going up to the Father because this is a better way. They're going to get more of me through you. You will be my hands and feet. Therefore, the world needs you. And number three, wait, so number one, you are most definitely not God. Number two, God has most definitely called you to be his hands and feet to this world. And then number three, someone is most definitely waiting on the other side of your story for you to be the image of Jesus to them, to be an imitator of God. Therefore, you are needed. Therefore, you are needed. Hear me out right now. The Lord, your God on high, desires for you right now to get involved in his mission of redemption and reconciliation at the right time in some capacity that is appropriate to your respective position on the journey of sitting, walking, and standing. Let me, let, let, let me break this down. You may be at a point in your life where you are sitting in that chapters one through three. I need to sit and understand who God is and be filled up. You may be in the walking port where you're learning how to do this Christian life and behavior. Or you may be now the mature Christian that's learning how to stand in victory as a proclaimer of all things that God says. Whether you're sitting, walking, or standing, God wants you to be radically involved in his mission right now at the position that you're in on this journey. Everybody has a part to play, folks. The only thing that stops us from doing that is our sin and our shame and our fears and our insecurities and our pride and our arrogance. Did you know that King David also struggled massively with stepping into God's mission and fighting for the things of God at the right time to the, his full capacity for the purposes of redemption and reconciliation, just like me and you? Did you know that the Bible says that at a time of the year where all the kings who were serving the Lord were fighting forward for the things of God, are you tracking with me? Watch this. At a time of the year where all the kings that served God were fighting for the things of God and fighting to do the things that God was telling them to do, David stayed back in Jerusalem. Did you know that? You see, David had been victorious almost his whole life. He has spent all, his whole life since being a boy doing the things that God had said. He always was working on doing what God was telling him to do. But when God says, don't do this, David wasn't doing it. When God said, do, uh, do this, David got to doing that. He was celebrated from a boy. He took down Goliath. He had done so many things that God was telling him to do. So David got to the point where he became content. Hey, that word's going to be important. Keep, keep track with me. David became content. He was like, hey, I've been doing a lot of things that you said don't do, and I've been doing a lot of things that you told me to get going on, and I think that I deserve a little break. I deserve just some pleasure right now. I've been, I've been working hard. I'm, I'll get back on my whole holy do what God says journey, but right now I just want a break, and I want to have a little fun. I want some pleasure, and then I'll get back on your mission, God. Hey, hey, stop right there. Hello. Does that sound like you? Does that sound like me? Oh, God, I've been working really hard on my righteousness. I've been working really hard. Uh, I, now I just need a little me time. 
I, I, yes, I'll get back on to doing what my pastor's teaching and the verses and stuff. But I mean, look at me, God. Look how much I've grown in the last four months. I mean, don't I deserve some pleasure? I just want a break. I, I, how about I'll get back to working on these things hmm, in a couple months. But right now, I'm, I'm going to take a check out because it's time for me to have a little like, you know, a little pleasure time for all the good work that I've done. And you know what? That's what David did. He chose to back off of staying on course with what God was asking. He grew weary of staying in the mission of, hey, don't do this, and hey, start doing this. He grew weary. And so David, therefore, backed off of his responsibility as a Christ follower. And you know what happened? He would go with Bathsheba, who he was looking at in the shower from his rooftop, and he would commit idolatry. And then from there, David's life becomes like a really sad soap opera, folks. He goes on to do a lot of lying to people. He starts murdering a lot of people. And ultimately, he starts to do a lot of bad things. Now, over time, David would have a truly repentant heart. He would cry out to the Lord with a genuine heart and repent and go on an amazing journey of reconciliation. And so eventually his buddy Nathan comes up to him, right? You know the story? Nathan comes up to him. This is his buddy. And he goes, hey, David, get off the floor, man. You're forgiven. You're sealed. You're forgiven. You got to get back up. And, that, and that's what God's saying to me and you. Hey, if you are genuinely repentant, if you've genuinely said, God, I'm wrong. God, I want to do it my way anymore. I want to put away my old man. I want to step into my new man. God's saying, get up off the floor. So, so let's go back into the, to the Old Testament story. So Nathan's like, David, David, get up. You're grieving. You're grieving. God has forgiven you. He's, he's seen how serious you are about your sin. You've been forgiven. But you know what else? Nathan made it radically clear to David that because of your sin, Though you are radically forgiven and you do got to get up off the floor, there are going to be serious consequences and there will be massive ripple effects because of that sin. Hey, family and friends, everyone tuning in today, there will always, always, always be massive consequences for your sin. In fact, David experienced two massive ones. And we're going to talk about those right now because we need to take the word of God seriously. The first massive ripple effect was the death of his baby that he had unfaithfully with Bathsheba. Oh my gosh, stop right there. I refuse to be a preacher. This has been my resolve since I've been a youth pastor. I will not read the word of God and allow it to be a cookie cutter Disney Channel story that we don't take seriously. Did you hear what I just said? Because of David's sin, his child died. Okay, so let, let's jump in the text. Most of you have kids. Get the name of one of your children in your, fa- in your mind right now. Put their face in your mind. If you don't have a kid, put your brother or sister in your mind. Your mom, your dad, someone that you love and beloved. And then I want you to imagine your sin directly caused their death. My God. David's sin cost an innocent child, his child, their life. Like that's at least third degree manslaughter, isn't it? That's terrible. His sin cost him and it cost a murder. Eventually, David paid the ultimate price for staying in his sin. But folks, 
the second massive ripple effect was even worse. What can be worse? What could honestly be worse than that type of sin? Here it is. The second massive ripple effect of David's sin, the consequence, was that he led others into unbelief as king. He led others into unbelief about God as king. And so Nathan basically tells him, hey, bro, hey, Dave, do you know what the consequences of your sin is? Hey, Dave, these people have been following you since you've been a young man. They rallied behind you when you took down Goliath. They watched you build this kingdom. And they have, because you were pure and you were pursuing God and chasing God, they saw the God in you. And because they saw the God in you, they began to start their relationship with God. But David, they've heard the things you've done. They, they, they've heard about your sins and the way you've murdered people and hurt people and lied. And because of that, it's caused them to question God. And it's led some to not believe in God. It's created unbelief. Hey, 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 bro, Dave, Dave, this is Nathan talking. Dave, your impurities are causing others not to see God in you anymore. And it's affecting their ability to see God for themselves. And so David's mistakes sins and transgressions caused others to distrust the God of the universe. How terrible, scary, and depressing is that ripple effect? What is worse than hindering people's faith in God? This was the consequences of David's sin. He caused the death of his child, and he led others to no longer be Christians and to have unbelief. My God, help him and help us. And he did. Even though there's absolute consequences to our sin that God wants us to be aware of, even though he wants to take them so seriously, and we should, even though we cannot be lazy and laggardly because there's a great cost and we need to know that, God is ready and available with grace and mercy for those who have a repentant heart to give you a new story. So I've come with new good news because this story ends with good news. And I want to show you God's great grace on display for David. So because of David's repentant heart and him sticking on his reconciliation story for years and years being faithful, weeping before God and saying, I'm wrong and you're right. I'm a zero and you're a hero. Do you know what God did? God blessed David with another baby. Are you kidding with me? He, did you, okay, let's go back to that analogy. Get that, get that, get your child in your mind and imagine that your sin caused them to die. And then that same God would even dare to allow you to be a parent again. How good is our God? So, hey, whatever you've done, whatever muck and mire you've made, you remember that David literally was responsible for the death of a child and God allowed him to have another child to steward towards the kingdom. If God would do that for David, what in the world will he do for you? So, so, so not only did God, oh, this is so good. Not only did God give David another, he didn't give him any baby. This baby, his name would be Solomon. And this son Solomon would go on to be the greatest and the most wealthiest king of all time. And the Bible says that to this day, he is the wealthiest man to ever leave. Are you tracking with me? God not only, God not only 
<laughs> replaced a horrible moment. He redeemed it all the way to the point where he gave him a son who would become the greatest son ever. One of the greatest sons. That's how our God does redemption. That's how our God does reconciliation. Praise God for how his grace and mercy reign supreme in our life. David, an adulterous, lying, murderous man, was given another opportunity to parent and to father a child. And that son, you ready for this? This son Solomon, would guess what? He would be, out of his lineage, the Davidic line, the baby Jesus would come. My God. He used David's life, despite his muck in the mire, for Jesus to come out of that lineage. That's how God does reconciliation. That's how big, that's how mighty, and that's how legit our God is. So what does all of this mean? Here it is. Like King David, there are times when we struggle to step into God's mission as he calls us because of our sin, shame, fears, and insecurities. And oftentimes, our failure to launch leads to more sin and more consequences. So God wants us to be so cognizant of our sin because of the massive ripple effects it has on ourselves, others, and the glory of God. We must stand in the tension as Christians, recognizing the real consequences of our sin and the damage it causes. However, we should also run quickly to the grace of God that has the power to heal, save, and transform our lives. The best life is still possible in Christ, even after sin. Therefore, we must trust our whole lives to him to begin that redemptive process today. Okay, now, believe it or not, this is supposed to be the thousand-foot perspective of this postcard of chapter 5. We haven't even really dived into anything deep. We're just kind of looking now. Uh, we're coming down. We're, we're able to see some of the streets a little bit more clear. You can, see, you can see some proverbial parks of Ephesians chapter 5. Ooh, there's some buildings. We're kind of coming down. And so what we're going to do for the rest of the sermon is I'm just going to faithfully lay out six things that we see in verses 1 through 21 that God says, hey, I forbid these things. Don't do them. And I'm just going to kind of exhort about them just for a moment. And then I'm going to end with six things that God says, hey, because you know what I love about our God? He doesn't say just don't do things. He tells us what we should do instead. And so then we're going to finish up with six things that God says, hey, I really want you to start doing these things and picking these things up. And I'm going to just kind of exhort about them for just a moment. And then over the next few sermons, we're going to take all of these things and we're going to fillet them completely open to see all that God has for us. Okay. Are you ready? Let's do this. Let's get ready. Let's get ready to march. Here's the, one, the first thing that God says that we should not do. Number one, we should not engage in sexual immorality or impurity. Okay, so let me say it this way. The only sexual union that is permitted and commanded by God is one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship in marriage. You tracking with me? Every single thing that's outside of one man and one woman, specifically in a monogamous marriage, is taught as immoral and not right in the Bible. 
Now, of course, the world and our culture is telling us there's a lot of type of relationships that we can have, right? But for those who are Christ followers, we submit to this Bible, and it is telling us loudly that the only sexual union and the only sexual relationship of any type is to be between one man and one woman, specifically in a monogamous relationship described in the Bible as marriage. You know, when I was a youth pastor, I used to have young men come up to me all the time. And they say, Pastor Brandon, I'm just so upset. My mom and dad said I can't date. And I want a boyfriend. And I want a girlfriend. And I just want you to understand, Pastor Brandon, like, I'm not even having sex. All we do is just go to the movies. We hold hands. We make out a little bit. Like, this girl's so hot. Why are my parents riding my back? What do you think, Pastor Brandon? And you know what I say? I used to say this. Hey, hey, young man. I'm sure the girl's really, I'm sure she's really hot and attractive. Do you want to know what else is really hot? And they'd go, what? What's really hot? Hell. Hell's also really hot. So how about you put your hands back in your pocket, obey your parents, and put that hot girl to the side so you can avoid that hot hell. And that might, that might seem dramatic to you, but it's not. And here's what the thing, young man. Here's the thing, young woman. The thing you should be focusing on right now is a 15 and 17-year-old in high school. And this is good news. The thing you should be focusing on is these things. Your character, your holiness, understanding your identity, and keeping your nose in those books. There's a time and place for everything. But right now, get to work on your character. Get to work on your education. Get to work on your identity. Get to work on your holiness. And then you can have the time of your lives with this girl. And the time of your lives with that man. In the right time, at the right season, to the point where you can radically enjoy it. And you know what people say sometimes? They go, well, okay, okay, Pastor Brandon, now you're getting a little extreme. Now you're telling me, you know, that I shouldn't be making out. And, 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 and you know what? What does the Greek say about all this? Does the Greek say that I can't live with my boyfriend? I mean, I really need to make sure that he's a good fit for me. And can I really not live with my girlfriend? I mean, we need to uh, experience each other sexually to make sure that we're a good fit sexually. Maybe we don't turn each other on. Like, what does the Greek say about all these things? Well, the Greek says that you're still outside of the will of God. The ESV version says it, the Amplified Bible says it, the Message Bible says it, the NSAB version says it, the NIV, the NLT, every single version, the Greek, the Hebrew, every other language, the Korean Bible, they, all the Bibles that are rooted in this God of the universe says that the only sexual union of a man and a woman engaging in any type of sexual reality is to be between one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship specifically called and described in the Bible as marriage. Anything else is not permissible. That's what the Bible tells us. And here's the deeper problem with this type of sin of sexual sin. You ready? This type of sin is a soul sin. What I mean by this is that sexual sin is the one sin that's done to the inside of the body, not on the outside. And when you do this type of soul transaction, hey, pay attention, eyes right here. When you do these sexual acts with people, there's a soul transaction that occurs that you can never, ever, ever, ever get back. Oh yes, there is redemption and reconciliation for your relationship with God. There's redemption and reconciliation for your standing in eternity with God. But there is no redemption and no reconciliation for the sole transaction of what happens when you sexually engage with someone that God has not given you.
brothers and sisters, when you do that, you are robbing your spouse or the future spouse that God has for you. And they're never going to get that part of your soul back. And the more transactions that you have sexually, are you with me? The more sexual transactions that you have, the more you are permanently losing parts of yourself that you're never going to get back. You become less and less human, less and less having the ability to feel rightly towards sex, marriage, and God's design for you. And I don't want that for you. More importantly, God doesn't want that for you. And this is why you, you, we got to tell our kids this. We got to tell our kids this immediately. They need to know how important it is to wait until marriage. Like when they're whining and complaining, why can't I have a girlfriend? Why, why, why? Why can't I have a boyfriend? Why, why, why? Why is it a big deal? We're just doing this. We're just doing that. We're just hugging. We're just kissing. We're just making out. What's the big deal? Hey, lean in. Don't get lost in telling them peripheral issues like, because I don't want you to get pregnant or I don't want you to get STDs. Hey, hey, parents, you are a Christ-centered parent. Are you tracking with me? Do not prescribe to your kids like you're a secular parent without the wisdom of God. Yes, being pregnant and getting an STD are good and right and true things to warn them of. But you are a Christian parent, a Bible-believing parent, and there is a much more weighty, important reason than pregnancy or STDs. And you know what it is? It's this. Hey, child, your soul and your ability and your capacity to love others, to love yourself, and to be radically healthy and happy is on the line when you do these things. The worst thing is not the kid. The worst thing is not the SCDs. It's what's happening to your soul, son. It's what's happening to your soul, daughter. Hey, pay attention, parents. Don't use scare tactics. It's not all about pregnancy. It's not just about the STDs. Instead, focus on that soul transaction. Let them know that in the end, it leads to death. That this sin is too costly. It ruins lives. It's going to ruin their ability to love. It's going to cost them way more than this momentary pleasure. Do you know how many young men and women that I counsel and that I minister to over the last 10 years who are filled with shame for their sexual promiscuity, the things they've done, you got to tell your little children. you got to tell your teenage son. you got to tell them now. Tell them now. You don't want to go in this way. You do not want to go in this way. Not just because of pregnancy, not STDs, because there's a soul transaction that's going to break you down, and I don't want that for you. So tell them to wait. Tell them it's going to be worth it. You know, when Aiden and Aubrey, and they start dating or wanting to date, in middle school and high school, I say, Dad, why, 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 why? Please understand that Pastor Brandon, as for me and my house, I'm going to say, hey, 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 listen. You're not dating because there's a soul transaction that's happening. And every time you're engaging in these sexual realities, it's permanently affecting your ability to love and be happy later. I actually want to love your future wife and your future husband so well. You're not dating in this house. But here's what you can do. Hey, when we say no, give them a new goal. Focus on your holiness, focus on your identity, focus on your purity, and focus on your destiny. That's what we tell our kids. Now, 
We're starting to deep dive, so let's move on and let's pick up the pace just a little bit. Number two, we should not engage in covetousness. Now, covetousness is most simply explained by wanting what other people have. Now, it's, it's okay to appreciate what other people have and to celebrate them, but be careful because you might be walking the fine line of covetousness. Now you may be thinking to yourself, oh, this girl is so, so pretty. I wish I was pretty like her. Man, this guy is built so athletically. I wish my body was like his. Be careful. You may be running the dangerous line and feeling the dangerous symptoms of covetousness. Now, do you want to know something so interesting about this? Did you know that in verse 3, covetousness and coveting is right next to other sexual sins talked about in the scripture. Like, isn't that so, so interesting? Like naturally on my own, I wouldn't think that coveting would be right next to sins like sexual sins. Like, are those real? Is, is coveting really that bad? Folks, yeah, yes, it's comparable. You know why? Because when you are coveting something, it means you will do anything and everything to get satisfied in this misplaced desire that you have. Because remember, coveting is wanting what doesn't belong to you and God hasn't given to you and ignoring it and saying, I'm going to get it anyway. That's a dangerous, dangerous game. We're going to talk really faithfully about coveting when we get into these future sermons later. Number three, we should not participate in filthiness, foolish talk, or crude humor. You know, I was driving to Folsom, California back when I lived there as a basketball coach and I had my players and they knew that I was a part-time pastor at that time and a part-time coach. And so one of them says, Coach BK, that's how, that's, that's my name, they called me that. They said, Coach BK, hey, what is your opinion on cussing? Like, is it really a big deal? You're a pastor, what do you think about that? And so I said, you know what? In the word of God, specifically in Luke chapter six, it says that out of the heart, all things abound out of the mouth. So the things that you're saying out of your mouth are a reflection of your heart. And so we're talking in the SUV, and I'm like, so therefore, if your mouth is junky, it's because your heart's junky. If you got filth out of your mouth, it's because you got a filthy heart. And essentially, the goal is to make sure that your heart is clean so that your mouth is clean. And hey, it's not just cuss words that are, make, that are filthy. It's even crude joking. Hey, making fun and belittling people, talking about things that aren't funny and trying to make them funny. When we do those things, it tells us that we're sick in our hearts. And so I ended off the drive before we got to the basketball game, and I exhorted them, and I said, hey, let's all make it a goal to continue to not have filthy things coming out of our mouth, and let's focus on having a clean heart. There's much more for us to talk about in the future sermons about this, but we should not say filthy things out of our mouth. Number four, we should not associate with sinful behavior as opposed to sinful people. And this distinction means everything to the Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christian who really wants to be marked by the gospel. Like in other words, we are to be we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Are you tracking that in and that of is everything? We are to be in the world, just not of the world. Like God through Paul is not asking us to separate ourselves from, from people that are sinful. Like if we were really going to separate ourselves from people that are sinful, we would have to go to a whole different universe. And then as soon as we got to the universe and the planet, we couldn't stay there because we have sin. Are you tracking with me? Rather, God is making it crystal clear that we are not to dwell in relationship with people who are engaging in sinful behavior. 
We're all sinful people. We don't dwell in relationship with people who are engaging in sinful behavior. And so when your friends or your family or your loved ones, whoever it is, is doing really dumb things, really sinful things, things that God says are forbidden, things that God says we should not do, you have a Christ-centered responsibility to communicate from a wise position that's filled with boundaries in that relationship that says, hey, these things are not things that I can participate. I can't be here with you. I can't do this alongside you. I have to go. I can't do this. I have a destiny to walk in. It's, it's about not dwelling in close proximity to that behavior. It's about speaking up and speaking truth and speaking life with grace and mercy at the right time, in and out of season. So when you have the opportunity to fellowship with, with sinful people, which we all are, you've got to make sure that you're avoiding the traps of doing superficial, sinful, carnal, rebellious activities, and that you've got to speak up as a child of the light and say, hey, I can't dwell with you in these things. I got to go get my destiny. And brother, sister, I want to encourage you to go find a better destiny for yourself as well. We're going to talk about this sinful behavior in a real way. It's going to be really sobering, but really redemptive. Let's keep, let's keep tracking. Number five, we should not take part in the works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, you don't need to go hunting for darkness, but when darkness finds you as a Christian, you need to absolutely reprove it. And then if you need to, you rebuke it fully if necessary. Now, you may be wondering what's the difference between reproving something and rebuking something. What's the difference? Let's, let's look at that. Let's keep tracking. Reproving something is a gentle disposition aimed at correcting a necessary fault. Whereas rebuking is an assertive disposition aimed at sharply correcting a fault. So when you reprove something, it's because it's a gentle, it's a gentle way. It's like, hey, I want to invite you to understand that this isn't right. Rebuke means the cost is too high. I rebuke it now. It has to go. Now, my mentor really, really put this on great display, this reproving version of it, um, and I want to share it with you. So he always said that when people would come up to him as a pastor and try to gossip about people, this is what he would say. He says, hey, I just want you to know that God did not design my ears to be a landing place for garbage to be spoken about with people. And so I would prefer if you would talk to someone else about that. My ears were given to me by God and they're not to be filled with these things. It was a gentle reproof of saying, okay, you can do what you want to do, but I, I can't listen to this. Sometimes though, we have to lean in with the rebuke and say, hey, you should not talk like that about this brother and sister. It's not glorifying to God and it's not the right thing to do. Sometimes we reprove and sometimes we rebuke. We'll get more into this faithfully over the next couple weeks. They're both going to be radically important for our lives. Number six, we should not get drunk. Now, let me be very clear. It is not a sin to drink as long as you have these three things in mind, okay? Number one, it is not a sin to drink if you don't break the law. That means if you're 18 or you're underage or for whatever reason it's been legally deemed that you can't drink and you're drinking, it is a sin for you. It is not a sin to drink as long as, number two, as long as you yourself are not drunk. That means everybody. I don't care what age you are. The Bible makes it clear that we are to have our right minds, that we are not to be drunk 
and outside of our minds. So if you're drinking to the point where you are drunk, it is a sin. But number three is going to be the most important reason. And we're going to camp out here for just a moment. It is not technically a sin to drink as long as you're not causing others to stumble. Woe to you who cause the little ones to stumble. God talks about very bad things that happen to those who cause others to stumble. And for this reason, the Rochelle family, we don't engage categorically with drinking. Regardless whether it's a sin, I want my mark, my life to be radically marked by helping people to see Jesus, helping people to radically see eternity, to radically have purity. And I don't want even accidentally my life to be a stumbling block for anyone. And it may be something you want to think deeply about yourselves. Now, all throughout scripture, there are many reminders that we are not to be drunk with wine. But I want you to know that the Bible is communicating something much deeper than technically not being drunk with wine. It's really talking about an expectation for us as Christ followers that we should not be under any controlled substance of any kind of any addiction. So whatever's controlling you, that's something that you're drunk in. It could be sexual sin. It could be TV, whatever. Don't be drunk with something that controls you. Oh, I want to talk about that because this can be a slippery slope, and we'll get into that as we march through this stuff later at another time. Now, these are the six should nots of the Christian life. These are the things that God says, I have forbidden them. But remember, these things are not being forbidden just because God said they're bad. They're forbidden because God looked at them and he diagnosed them and he said, these things, when you do these things, they separate you from me. They wreck your life. And in my infinite wisdom, I've declared they're bad. They're not good for you. And the enemy and the adversary have, he's constructing them to take you out. But now we're going to look really briefly at six things that God says. Now, these things are my choice weapons. These things are filled with righteousness and purity, and they give you life abundantly. Faith family, I don't know about you, but I got a couple more minutes to talk about that. Here we go. Number one, we should imitate God. This is another opportunity for you and me right now to remember that what would Jesus do? Anthem, like, where's that? I wear it all the time. What would Jesus do? Hey, men of Redemption City Church, are you walking that anthem that we laid out four or five months ago to wear those braces as a faithful reminder of what would Jesus do? Like, are we living our lives uh, just, just flippantly not thinking about Jesus? Or are we walking day by day faithfully saying, God, what, what would you do? What would you do, Jesus, in this moment right now when I'm correcting my kids? What would you do, Jesus, right now in this argument with my wife? What would you do right now, Jesus, as I have this moral decision with my finances as I talk with the IRS? These are the things that Paul is saying that we should do. We should be imitators of God as beloved children of God. We got to start imitating him by saying, what would he do? And then doing it. We have a lot to talk about when it comes to imitating God, that Imago Day image of God next week. And I can't wait. Number two, we should walk in love, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not insist in its own way. It does not envy. It does not boast. We got to walk in that kind of love. This is a habitual lifestyle that we're supposed to be engaging in. Every day, are you walking those things out? Like, if I were to use one word, if I said, hey, brother, sister, over the last couple weeks, if you had to use one word for what you've been kind of living and focusing on, would it be love? Man, I've been living 
to love, to be laying my life down, to be sacrificial, to not demand my own way? Or would it be, the, words, the word would be success, pride, arrogant, short-tempered. What is the word of your week? Is it love or is it pain? Is it love or is it complaining? What is the word of your week? Let's make it love. We should be walking in love. This leads to being able to see God, which is a relationship with God, which leads to your peace with God, yourself, and others. Let's keep, let's keep marching. I can't wait to talk about these things. Number three, we should walk as children of the light. That means that you and I have to be willing to be honest with ourselves and others. That's what it means to be in the light. You've got to be honest with yourself. You've got to be honest with God. And you've got to be honest with others. Got a bug on me. You've got to do that. We have to joyfully recognize that the light is good. I know that it can feel exposing, but it's a good thing. It's a right thing. It's a true thing. It feels so good to be in the light. Like being in the light gives you power to expose areas where you're weak so that you then therefore can become strong in Christ. That's a good, that's a right, and that's a true thing. Like, have you ever looked into a mirror? Like, a lot, a lot of women, like I see them on YouTube, they have these mirrors and they have like all these lights that go around the mirror, and I don't know what they're called. And then like the woman gets really close and she's kind of looking at the pores. Like, those mirrors aren't created for them to put makeup on, but rather they get really close and they do their face like this and they're trying to look at all the imperfections and the craters and the pimples so they can go about cleansing it and ultimately healing. Well, just like that, being in the light is a beautiful thing, even if you see things that you don't want to see. It's like getting up proverbially to that Christ-centered mirror, and it's like, man, I can finally see that crater, that pore, that dirt. Praise Christ. Ew, it's kind of ugly, but I'm glad that I can see it because now I can go about the process in Christ of cleaning it up. The light is good. We're going to talk about being children of the light. Oh, that's going to be so good. Let's go to the next one, number four. We should discern what pleases God. So for, so for us as Christians, we are to walk in wisdom, discerning what pleases our God, taking steps to understand the Word of God more and more and more. You see, as we deepen our relationship with the God of the universe, we begin to recognize that our life is not about us primarily anymore. It's about stepping out of our story and stepping into God's story and recognizing that God's story is better, so much better. We move from I want this and I want that. I want, I want, wah, 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 as children on milk, as Paul says, to children who are not only eating solid, solid food, but preparing and cooking and baking solid food for others. And then we say, Lord, what do you want? May your will be done. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to exalt your name. That's what it means to be a Christian, folks, is to move from wah, wah, whining to cooking for others, for God's glory and our joy. It's about moving from self-focuses to Christ-centered focuses. This is good news. We'll talk about that. Number five, we should walk wisely making the best use of the time. And I tell you the truth, there are so many dumb, unprofitable things that we do with our time, aren't there? And as Christians, we don't want to just be spending our time doing and producing stupid stuff and dumb stuff that has no eternal realities. We don't want to be living 
filled with superficialities. But rather, we want to make sure that how we spend our time is filled with redemptive purposes. Over time, throughout this chapter 5 of these sermons, we're going to learn more and more about how we can make the best use of our times. Of our time. But for now, what I want you to understand is when it comes to the things that you do, including your hobbies, right? Whether it's reading books or fly fishing or golfing or <laughs> watching games or drinking coffee, working out, washing your clothes, running your errands, whatever it is that you're doing, these things are obviously not necessarily sinful, but they can be a total and utter waste of your time and the budgeted dollars and the budgeted days that God's given you if you're not intently saying, God, how do I redeem the time? So the Bible is telling us that we got to look for intentional ways to use even our hobbies in redemptive ways filled with eternal perspectives. Otherwise, we should avoid them. Whoa, 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 Pastor Brandon. I thought you were going to say something like drinking or something. You just listed some stuff. You said coffee dates. Did you just say washing my clothes? What you, you just said that I should avoid them? Hey, lean in. If we are not examining everything that we do with our time and saying how can we redeem it for eternal purposes the bible is telling us we need to avoid them so basically this is the point of the sermon where the sermon is no longer attractive to the worldly carnal rebellious nominal christian man or woman if you want to hear that sermon you're gonna have to hear you know this is not the sermon for you this is officially where you're going to want to check out but for the christ-exalting christian who wants to be radically devoted for to to god lean in Because what I'm communicating is a direct assault against sin, carnality, rebellion, and the enemy from the God of the universe wrapped in love that if we don't watch our tendencies to practice over-focus on things that are temporary, it's going to cost us. Now, I'm not saying that hobbies can't be redeemed. You tracking with me? I'm not saying we can't do them. But I want you and me to be so radically faithful to be examining, man, can I redeem the time when I do this? Can I, can I, can I redeem it? Do I need to throw this out? Like, for example, if you go to the movies, are you just going or are you going, man, how can I go to the movies with my friend and we watch this secular movie and then we see the brokenness of humanity and then on the way home we're talking about, man, this is dark, this is broken, and then at least to man, what man, what would be a better alternative? And then we talk about God redeeming the time. Are you just going to coffee, sipping it, eh, eh, for no reason? Or are you inviting someone in discipleship to, man, encourage your sister in her marriage and she's encouraging you as you sip that coffee? Are you just sitting around reading books, curl up on the couch? Huh, huh, I love to read these things. I love reading books. I love love stories. Yay. Or are you reading and stewarding your mind to become more like Jesus? Are you reading things that help you to become more of an imitator of God? If we're doing hobbies that are not redemptive, we are wasting the time. And God says, hey, make the best use of your time. Man, I want to flay this open more. We're going to get to that in a couple weeks, but not today. Let's keep tracking. Here's the final one. We should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I tell you what, this language in Ephesians chapter 5 totally reveals that the Holy Spirit is not a force, but a person. And when we are filled with him, these exhortations to do all things on this list become possible. You with me? 
all these things that he says, don't do, don't do, don't do the forbidden. And all these things he says, hey, start doing this, start doing that. It's all possible because of the Holy Spirit. And we're sealed. We're sealed. We're so secure in the Holy Spirit. All the way through this redemptive process, all the way to eternity. There's no way that we can do it without the Holy Spirit, but we are so capable of doing it with him. And we got to know that. And we have to believe that. As a matter of fact, let's put up verse 1 right here again from chapter 5 of Ephesians when it says this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. This is where this whole chapter starts off. This is where we start to land the plane. And this is where we head off till next week. Therefore, the command and the goal and the aim as we go now and we prepare to jump crazy into chapter 5 is to be imitators of God as beloved children. So we're going to land the plane with this focus on three important things that I want you to remember. Because these are the three things that happen when you become a child of God, a beloved child of God who imitates. Number one, your identity changes. Hey, you're not your own anymore. You're not some illicit child. You're not a child of wrath. You are a child of God. You've been sealed. You've got a belt like the gulls. You've got a little seal on your belt that says, property of the God of the universe can't mess with me. And that changes everything about you because you're sitting with him now. And that reality, that new identity changes everything and it leads to number two. Your destiny changes. Oh, praise Christ. Your destiny changes. This is my favorite part. You become a new person because of your new identity. And you start putting down a whole bunch of stupid things and you start picking up a whole bunch of redemptive, God-glorifying, joy-filled things. And you begin to repent and you begin to become humble and you start loving the light. You love exposing things. You like to get up in that mirror and say, "Mm mm-hmm, I see that crater. I see those pimples and I'm going to go get to work so God can clean them up. And you start to run forward into your future and you stop getting weighed down by your past and you start getting right with God and other people and your peace starts to permeate your life. And then it leads to the last one. Your destiny changes. Oh, man, because of your new identity, it leads to new activities and that new identity combined with those new identity, excuse me, those identity, that new identity with your new activities collides together into a beautiful chorus and symphony that leads to a beautiful song of a new destiny. And that destiny is that you now are in your God story, living radically, simply, yes, supernaturally, the way God has designed you to. You're lifting up his name. You're making much of Christ. You're receiving massive amounts of, uh, of joy, and you are helping others to see God because the Holy Spirit is making all things new in you. And then he starts to make things new in others around you. Now, I have so much more to say about this process of new identity, activity, and destiny. And that's why I can't wait to travel with you. Boots on the ground next week into chapter 5. We faithfully looked at the postcard of the Christian life from a 3,000-foot perspective, right? And we kind of just looked and said, what is chapter 5 going to be about? Today, we started hovering down at 1,000 feet, and you could see some things now. We've sit, we, we, we saw six things we shouldn't do. We saw six things from an aerial view of what we should do. And next week, we're going to get on the ground, boost to the ground. We're going to walk down these streets. And we're going to see if <laughs> we can step into our God story, if God can redeem all things, and he can. It comes down to this. 
will you trust God's work that he's doing in you? Have you gotten that rock-solid Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 confidence that you are a child of God? Because let me make it clear, if you are a child of God, he's not letting you off the hook in this holy book with your sin and your shame. He's going to heal you. He's going to free you up. He's going to set you up. He's not only not going to let you off the hook in this holy book. He's going to get you off the hook of your sin. He's going to get you off the hook with Satan. And he's going to give you a new road. And it's going to lead to your life with him now and forever. And that's worthy of our time and our praise and our worship and our devotion. Let's prepare for that next week. Let's ready our hearts this week. And let's pray. This is good news. Abba, Father, you've been so good to us, God. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we've studied your word today, and we've looked at this postcard of the Christian life in Scripture. And, God, I pray in Jesus' name that we would understand that you love us and that you are compassionate to us today in your word. And I pray that each and every person that's listening rightly today would accept the challenge that says, all right, God, I've been doing it my way for a very, very long time, but not my will, but your will be done. I pray that we would cry out, Abba, Father, I'm ready. Lord, I pray for everyone that we would download that axiom into our heart, that sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's been forbidden in love because you've diagnosed it as bad. And I pray that 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 axiom would carry us faithfully throughout chapter 5. And that as we march through chapter 5 and we learn about these six things we shouldn't do and these six things that we should do, and we learn even more about marriage and children and, and relationships and everything that you have for us, that every righteous man and woman who is listening with a genuine heart would arrive in chapter 6 in their lives victorious, ready to stand. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. God bless you, Redemption City Church.